Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt, and we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. In our podcast, we examine cases to decide if we believe the outcome of the legal proceedings was fair and justice was met. We always love and appreciate feedback for the purposes of creating discussion, and we also want to hopefully help bring some closure to these more heart-wrenching crimes. Please feel free to comment or inquire with us and create a discussion. We are also a totally organically grown podcast. We have a Patreon page, merchandise with our logos, and a Facebook page, which we encourage all our listeners to check out to participate in these discussion boards, because that's the best way we grow and network with our friends and listeners in the true crime community. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Johnny Carson Show. I'm kidding. It's Matt, your host for Eye for an Eye. Of course, you're here to listen to us, not the late show. I'm here with my lovely co-hostesses, Lisa, Jules. Tell them what's up. What's up? If it is late that you're listening to this, it's like our version of the late show. I guess that's true. It, it, I mean, it's not exactly early where we are either, you know? like It's 8.35 p.m. and I'm yeah. saying hello from my bedroom. Eastern Standard Time of the United States of America. Yes. Yeah. So a couple things I want to make note of because we got an interesting case for you today. I'm sure a lot of people in the millennial and Gen X generation will recall this case. Uh, but I want to first make note. It is a blind eye case. So we do not know the outcome of what happened here. Of course, our, our blind eye cases are the ones where we don't have an actual sentence to discuss whether an eye for an eye was met. So for those of you who are not familiar, we're going to be talking about a case where we don't have a verdict. But this is going to be our last blind eye that is available to our listeners on our regular feed. They will be going to our Patreon feed for all of our loyal listeners who come in with $5 a month or more. You will have access to this case and many others. We have several really wild blind eye cases. Some of the craziest cases in history are blind eye cases. And the ones that prompt the most conversation, I think, because absolutely, Jules. So right? You know, we talk about these for months, years yeah. after the, after the case is quote unquote closed, because they are the ones that really grab hold of us and like keep our attention. Um, also, wanted to note if you are hearing any technical audio issues, um, that's the FBI listening to us. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're recording virtually, so you guys might hear a little bit of interference. Hopefully not too much. We've been using Zencaster. Shout out the gang. They are awesome. Um, if you are recording from a distance, consider using their services. And no, I'm not being paid to say that, although I'd like to be. We'd love to be paid. And hopefully you're not noticing a lot of audio issues, then that's why we're choosing to use Zencaster. Um, so we love them. We are not sponsored by them, but we would love to be. Totally, totally. I mean, who can we talk to? Get us on there. Get us in front of them. Take me to your leaders and caster. Um, but let's dive into it. Uh, as always, some listener discretion is advised. We're going to be talking about a very interesting case. Lisa, what do we always say? What's the craziest month in history for true crime? Motherfucking May. Motherfucking May. Motherfucking May. Motherfucking May. Motherfucking May. 
Motherfucking May. Right. All right. So, of course, in May 2005. I seriously, we need to get to the bottom of that. That is like conspiracy number one for our new uh, sub-series. We do. We definitely do. Is there some conspiracy tied into May? So I haven't mentioned the name of the person, the subject of our discussion today, but I will now. In May 2005, as a celebration for her high school graduation, Natalie Holloway, an 18-year-old girl vacationed in Aruba with 125 of her graduating classmates. Hell of a party. She arrived May 26th, two days after graduation, and was scheduled to leave on the 30th. She never arrived for her plane home. The resulting investigation sparked a massive media outcry and a search throughout the Aruban Island that has puzzled authorities, her family, and the general public for Wait, years. did you say the name yet? I did. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was distracted, but I, I sorry. I just want to add Natalie Holloway's picture is like embossed in my brain. Like the one. No. Her, right? Um, like graduation photos. Her graduation photo, yeah, because it was blown up all over the TV yeah. for years. It felt like right. I feel like our generation, especially. And she was like a beautiful, like she was. She was beautiful, striking blonde, yeah. like yeah, like very smart girl. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about Natalie, but yeah, we'll definitely share that graduation photo. And honestly, like I said, most people our age will probably remember it. Um, so a bit about Natalie. Natalie was born October 21st, 1986. Shout out Matt Miles. Her parents divorced in 1993, and her mother remarried three years later. She moved with her mom, her stepdad, who was a wealthy individual, and her brother to Mountain Brook, Alabama. Supposedly, she led a very normal and happy childhood, according to her mother. So her mother will come up again, but we will talk a little bit about her later. Uh, Natalie was a straight-A student, a National Honor Society recipient, and was scheduled to go to the University of Alabama on a full scholarship the following year to study pre-med undergrad. Supposedly, she was also trying out for the football team. Just kidding. Natalie and her fellow graduates were on their senior trip. Honestly, um, Aruba sounds like a better destination than where I went for senior trip, but good for them. Uh, It was supposed to last five days. It was 125 students chaperoned by seven adults who supposedly checked in with them every day, but didn't keep up with them on their every move. Those poor seven people must have been freaking overwhelmed, man. That's a lot. I wonder if they were teachers. Um, I would wonder, like, honestly, what is that? Like, not 18 kids to one teacher, like, or chaperone? I I, um, have a friend who has had to chaperone, like, senior class trips. So I'm wondering if it's, like, a teacher or Oh, man. They were like, now kids, we're not going to be doing any of the sexing or the drinking or the drugging while we're down here, right? And it's like, yeah, right, Mr. Math teacher. Good luck. (laughs) Honestly. Um, so supposedly, and again, this is kind of taken secondhand after the fact, this is what the locals in the hotel that they stayed at had to say. Supposedly the group she was with was drinking pretty heavily and having a rowdy time. Of course it was senior week, mind you. So like they're kind of supposed to, according to reports, the hotel staff actually complained to local police that there was a lot of room switching and partying going on in the rooms. Again. No judgment here. Good for you guys. Yes, have your fun. And on senior trip, like, 
do your thing. Have fun. I'm not, we're not decrying anything about that. Okay. We're just making note of it because there was some conflict here between this high school, the hotel where they stayed and the Aruban police. And that will come up a bit later, but Aruban police, whom we will again, discuss a little bit further momentarily said that the group almost even got bounced from their hotel due to rowdy behavior. Rowdy bunch, baby. Yeah. It's like Animal House, but only for five days. It sounds pretty freaking lit. Um, supposedly, they were told the group wouldn't be back to the Holiday Inn that they had stayed at in the future. They were not going to allow their their high school to rebook. Um, doesn't necessarily seem out of turn for a group of high school seniors on a trip. Like, I, I get that. You know, people get drunk. People do fun shit. Uh, and I went to Ocean City, Maryland, I think it was. So that sounds Same cool days. and all. Gang. That sounds cool and all, but have you guys ever seen Aruba? Like We got to go there next, Matt. Given the choice of Ocean City, Maryland, and Aruba, come on. (laughs) It's like... I don't think that's much of a choice. It's like like the butthole of the world and then like the... the... Sitting on the shoulder with the angel on the side. It's like totally different. It's like, what's the butthole doing? Like, they're in secrets. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, But... Again, a little bit of a more extravagant vacation, obviously. Aruba, for those of you who are not familiar, is a small island just northeast of Venezuela in the Caribbean Sea. So we're talking pretty far south here, but, you know, again, vacation, all I ever wanted. Natalie in particular. Now, we do hear a lot about this and that she was, you know, obviously an honor student. Ooh, excuse me. She was obviously an honor student. She obviously did very well in school. So, again, we will not be judging this 18-year-old pardon me saying fine ass girl for doing what she wanted on senior trip. Go ahead, go ahead, get down. Uh, but it was after the fact mentioned that Natalie in particular was supposedly drinking pretty heavily on the trip, having cocktails in the morning to get started and getting her drink on throughout the day and night. This was reported by a couple classmates and her roommates who she was on the trip with. Again, do your thing, girl. I think it was Kanye West and Jamie Foxx who said, get down, girl. Go ahead. Get down. On May 30th, 2005, night she disappeared, Natalie was out with a group of friends on their last night in Aruba. She was partying at a bar called Carlos and Charlie's. Multiple people saw her with a young man named Joran Vandersloot and his two friends, locals Deepak and Salish Kalpo who are Surinamese brothers, who are 21 and 18, respectively. Uh, So Joran and the Kalpa brothers attended the International School of Aruba and were seen throughout the week with Natalie and her classmates. So these are local cats. Joran is actually Dutch. And for the longest time, up until about an hour ago, I thought this dude's name was Jordan. <laughs> so Joran, and now you're accenting it. <laughs> you, went, you went from A to Z, baby, real quick. Yeah, I mean, he's Dutch, so it's definitely Joran, and it makes way more sense that it would be Joran, but my <laughs> American-ass mind was just throwing that D in there because I got a D in that. Oh, that D. Yeah, but I will say when, when Matt said Jordan, he didn't, like, enunciate the D super hard. So it did still kind of sound like he was saying Joran, but like not. Yeah, definitely. It caught me up. What can I say? I'm not, I'm no linguist at this point in my life. I think it's fair to admit, honestly, I speak no tongues other than the one <laughs> they gave me. 
Yeah, that's another way to say speaking languages. Yeah, you know, I know, but in my brain, I'm thinking like tongues, like blah, 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 tongues, like you know, like talking to the devil. I know how to do the turkey gobble and some other things involved <laughs> that motion, but let's just leave it at that. At approximately one thirty in the morning, Natalie was seen leaving the bar, Carlos and Charlie's, in a car that supposedly belonged to Deepak Kalpo. Again, she was scheduled to fly home on a flight the next morning at noon. Well, I should say the next very early afternoon, but she never arrived. Her bags and passport were found in her room at the Holiday Inn, but no other trace of Natalie was anywhere to be found. So again, this is May 30th. It's worthy of noting that her parents acted very quickly, her mother and stepfather. They flew down immediately were in Aruba the same day that they realized that Natalie had not arrived for her flight. Her mother and stepfather were very critical of the police and the hotel staff for their handling of the investigation that took place shortly thereafter. They alleged misconduct and a cover-up throughout the process of the investigation, as a matter of fact. They complained that police had mishandled evidence, didn't properly interview other students who were with Natalie the night she disappeared, and that they had admitted some of the key facts of the case to actually find who was responsible. Um, but conversely, the Twitty's actions were also criticized. They were accused of actively stifling any evidence that might impugn Natalie's character by asking her fellow students to remain silent about the case and using their access to the media to push their own version of events. The Twitty's, they denied this allegation, of course, her parents. Um, but that is worthy of note that there were Two sides to this. The police, who of course investigate crimes and the district attorneys prosecute the offenders, these are their stories. And her parents, who are doing the best they can to try and find what happened to their daughter, but they also don't want her character besmudged in the media. So I get that. I really do see both sides of the equation there. But it's worthy of note that that strife within the police, the media, and her immediate family obviously created some more issues during the investigation. Um, so the Twitties themselves, we'll talk a moment about them. They were a wealthy family of some influence, attractive young blonde girl, American girl from Alabama, you know, straight A student. Her disappearance quickly became an internationally noticed incident. At first, the world watched as a coordinated search effort later devolved into a whole media circus with the extensive finger-pointing going on between both parties, and then continued to wait in horror, really, as no details ever really came to light. Approximately 100 tourists and various locals began the search right in the area from the hotel and the bar where she was on May 30th through June 1st. In the coming weeks, though, that search expanded pretty drastically to include a volunteer team from Texas the Aruban police force, Dutch Marines, because Aruba is owned by the Netherlands, we should say that, they're the Dutch colony, uh, and three F-16 fighter jets on loan from the Dutch, combing the water and the beach areas surrounding the island, although none of these searches were able to locate any sign of Natalie. So over that first week, police spent numerous resources pursuing leads. And I'm talking like they delved into pretty much everybody. So I don't really love the idea that the police didn't do enough because they, they talked to a lot of people. Suspects ranged from the security guard at her hotel to the men she left the bar with, 
Yorin, Deepak, and Salish. To a DJ on a party boat that was with her the day she disappeared. To one of those young men's fathers, even. He was questioned for his involvement. And again, all of this going on in the same week after she disappeared with nothing to come of it. Nothing that actually came to light. A lot of stones turned, very little information. All of those people were brought in for questioning, if not outright arrested by the Aruban police between June 1st and June 9th. It seemed like, though, all that the investigation led kept circling back to Joran Vandersloot and the Kalpo brothers. Their involvement seemed to be all intertwined, whether Natalie was with them at her last sighting or if they had seen her. Um, Joran Vandersloot's father was even brought in for questioning at one point. The young men all said that she was dropped off at her hotel. So they had Joran's father, these three young cats, and a bunch of other people they interviewed, all of whom said that she was dropped off back at her hotel. A lawyer for the Kalpo brothers, um, one of them, I should say, Satish Kalpo, uh, whose brother was also in custody for this, said that they took Natalie to Arashi Beach, which is on the northern part of the island, in the early hours of May 30th. According to their police statement, they didn't even get out of the car. Instead, Holloway and Joran Vandersloot, who was an honor student at the international, Aruban International School, we should mention. He also had, and I just want to say, like, we talk about Brock Turner, like how that honor student thing comes into play. Here it is again. So that doesn't necessarily dictate that you can't be an asshole. Just saying. So for all you with your stick figures on the back of your vans about my kid's an honor student, my dog would bite your honor student, whatever. Um, oh my gosh, never, never. No, he's not my dog. It's just a joke. Well, I don't have a dog. My girlfriend's out on our boat this weekend. I don't have a boat either. Um, but what anyways, is happening? I'm just saying, like, none of those things exist in my life. Honestly, I have you guys, a podcast, and I just had a fajita. That's about it. Um, but anyway, so these guys are all saying that Natalie and Yorn met at the casino in her hotel, and they're making out in the back seat while this is going on. So they're driving around the island, leaving. Jorn Vandersloot continued to proclaim his innocence, however, and suspects continuously just changed their story. Jorn and Vanders uh, Jorn and Natalie, I should say, had been together, and the Calpo brothers claimed they had dropped their friend off with Natalie at a beach near the Holiday Inn, and Vandersloot insisted that he left her there and walked home. It's a bit suspicious, and the police immediately found it suspicious, because on its face it didn't really make sense, his story. He had to walk a pretty fair distance home, and from all accounts had been tailing Natalie around all weekend while she was there. Now that it was her last night, he supposedly left her and walked home. So they're making out in the back seat first, then he's like, all right, take us to this beach, leave us here, and then she's going to go home and I'm going to walk home. Uh, Okay. Another strange element to the story that made it even less plausible, though, is that his shoes from that night were missing. Nowhere to be found. So he walked home without shoes on? Sounds to me like he got blood on his shoes. Just saying. 
but his story, as we said, changed multiple times. And that only added fuel to the fire of suspicion surrounding him. I mean, makes sense. He was the last one to supposedly see her, anybody saw her with. Um, reports indicated that Natalie Holloway did not appear on any nighttime surveillance camera footage in the hotel lobby. So the hotel she's staying in never saw her come in. Police Commissioner Jan van der Straten, the initial head of the investigation until he retired in 05, said that Natalie didn't necessarily have to go through the lobby to get to her room, though. So she may have snuck in a back door, may have found a way out. We don't know. But again, suspicious. Under pressure from her parents and the government officials, who were obviously pretty head over heels in this case at this point, Deputy Police Chief Gerald Dumpig arrested the three young men who were last spotted with Natalie Holloway. The suspects changed their story again at that point. The Calpos said they dropped off Joran van der Sloot and left Natalie and they went home. So they didn't have anything to do with it. Joran also claimed after he was dropped off, he left Natalie and walked home. Nothing to say. No way to, to refute that either, unfortunately. So after a month... In custody, being questioned regularly, the Kalpa brothers are released by Reuben police. Joran van der Sloot was ordered held for another 60 days. So that is worthy of note. They at least held him longer because they probably suspected he had either more to do with it or knew more than he was letting on, I would say. Um, but in the meantime, this investigation is still ongoing. So the search for physical evidence was extensive. And subject to the occasional false lead, as often these cases are, there's a lot of people when high-profile things are involved, people try and get involved, try and inject their two cents, and oftentimes that ain't worth two fucking cents. So, this search for physical evidence is ongoing and very extensive. For example, a blood sample taken from Deepak Kalpo's car was tested, but determined that it wasn't blood. This was one of the many misleading tips of that nature that the police received early in the investigation. They got a lot of information that was questionable. And that's another thing I think needs to be made note when we ask, because I'll ask you guys, I mean, who's responsible here at the end of all this? We still have our questions, if not I for now. But I think a lot of the police confusion was because they received a lot of fake leads. Um, during that time, police received numerous tips and pieces of evidence, supposedly, including a piece of tape discovered with strands of hair in the sea near Natalie's hotel, and even a tip from someone saying that the Kalpa brothers and Joran van der Sloot were digging outside of a nearby hotel that was being built currently. It was under construction. That tip even led investigators to dig up the pool for that hotel under construction in search of a body. All that to no avail. In July of 2005, Aruban police received a tip that the witness who had seen men dumping a female body in a landfill two days after Natalie Holloway went missing. So, this guy, whoever it was, or it was male or female, we don't know, came forward and said, hey, I saw these three guys who you've had in custody dumping a body in the landfill, which is a pretty common place. To dump a body. 
That landfill actually became a place of interest throughout the investigation, and police returned to search it numerous times after after getting that information because they obviously thought, well, there might be some credibility to that. That's where oftentimes missing people are found. Because disposing of a body, guys, even on an island where you got a whole unlimited body of water over there, you still got to get out there, weigh the body down, dump it over the side, and then hope to God that nothing causes it to float up or you're fucked. Um, and of course, that never happened. But after months in custody, so he was arrested in June, after about three months in custody, on September 3rd, Jorn Vandersloot was released on orders from a judge. There wasn't really anything to hold him on anymore. So months went on after that with very little return on any of the search efforts. And in an interview in March of 2006, Greta Van Susteren, who some of you might remember, had a very interesting talk show, aired an interview over the course of three nights with Jorn Vandersloot where he recounts the details of his time with Natalie Holloway, from drinking with her at the bar to leaving her behind on the beach, spending the weekend with her. This interview actually brought more scrutiny onto Yorin because he had, again, changed the story, had more details that he didn't tell police, and decided to tell the national media. So his scrutiny was heightened, and he was re-examined as a potential suspect after he was interviewed again by the police. During that interview, Joran van der Sloot indicated that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he didn't because he didn't have a condom. He stated that Holloway wanted them to stay on the beach, but that he had to get up to go to school in the morning. And according to Joran van der Sloot, he was picked up by Satish Kalpo at 3 a.m., and left Natalie sitting on the beach. Again, he changed his story. He supposedly had walked home with no shoes. Now he decided, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I forgot, I got picked up. My bad. Also, I don't really buy it. I mean, you guys can chime in if you agree or disagree, but I don't really buy the whole idea of like, oh, yeah, she wanted to have sex. I didn't have a condom. I decided against it. As a dude in that situation, I'm going to go ahead and say he's full of shit. I'm going to go ahead and say that's grade A bullshit. I mean, he seems very um, sketchy, and this is not the first, like, sketchy thing. So I also tend to think that that's bullshit. Just as a dude, having been in that situation before, it's very rare that you're like, ah, you know what? I shouldn't. She wants to. I shouldn't. Normally, it's like the other way around. Like, oh, yeah, I don't have a condom. You sure? Like, ah, yeah, we're good. Don't worry. Right? I mean, I'm not the only one that's ever been in that situation, I think. I I don't know. To me, it's just very sketchy that his story changes so many times. And then the details that he gives for the reasons he wasn't with her are suspect at best. Um, But... I digress. As the investigation continues, David Cruz, who was a spokesman for the Aruban Minister of Justice, falsely indicated that Natalie Holloway was dead and that authorities knew the location of her body. This was in June of 2005, mind you. So the search was still ongoing. These guys are in custody. 
They're claiming that they knew where her body was. David Cruz later retracted that statement, saying he was a victim of a misinformation campaign, quote-unquote. That evening, Dompig alleged that to the AP, to the Associated Press, that one of the detained young men admitted, quote, something bad happened to Natalie Holloway. Interesting. So, flash forward now. We're going to move forward to April 27th, 2007. So we're about a little under two years ahead of from when Natalie originally disappeared. A new search involving approximately 20 investigators was undertaken at the Vandersloot residence in Aruba. Investigators were following up on statements made during initial suspect interrogations and communications between the Calpo brothers and Joran Vandersloot. So they're going back, circling back after the fact, two years later, to some of these correspondences and their interviews. On May 12, 2007, the Calpo family residence was also searched by Ruben authorities. The brothers were detained for about an hour upon objecting to the entry by police and Dutch investigators, but they were released later that day, after it was realized that there was no evidence of any misconduct in their house. So, we go forward again a few months, and notice there are some long gaps in information here, because unfortunately with these cases, as oftentimes these happen, things progress very slowly. Um, but after a long gap of any plausible information, and with numerous changes in authority, as we said, the original investigator retired, another guy was vilified in, in public for having made a complete misstatement, uh, so there's numerous changes in the authorities. On November 21st, 2007, Jorn Sloot and the Kalpo brothers were arrested again. Vandersloot was held in the Netherlands, where he was attending school at the time. The Kalpo brothers were detained in Aruba after, quote, new incriminating evidence had surfaced, end quote. Nothing came from this new evidence, however, either. And by December 7th, less than three weeks later, all suspects were again ordered to be released. So whatever this information they were accumulating was, clearly wasn't good enough to hold them in a Reuben or Dutch court. So it makes you wonder, what were they doing exactly? At the request of the Aruban government, the Netherlands took over the investigation in mid-2007. So April 16th, it says here, 2007, a combined Aruban-Dutch team began pursuing the investigation in Aruba. By this point, Natalie's mother, who again has been involved this entire time, but kind of from a distance, but Beth Twitty was claiming that the investigation had been mishandled by the Aruban police. She even filed wrongful death lawsuits against Joran van der Sloot and the Kalpos. The lawsuits were thrown out, however, due to jurisdictional issues in early 2007. So I guess she must have filed them in U.S. court, and based on the fact that they don't have any jurisdiction in Dutch-owned Aruba, were unfortunately tossed. Jorn van der Sloot was, as we said, arrested, held, and then released without any charges on December 7th of that year due to lack of evidence implicating him as well as a lack of evidence that Natalie Holloway died as a result of a violent crime. With no dead body, 
obviously they were just working on the speculation of her disappearance. We don't know exactly what happened to her, so we can't hold him accountable. On December 18, 2007, Prosecutor Hans Moss officially declared the case closed and said that no charges would be filed due to lack of evidence. An attorney for the Kalpos named Ronald Wicks also stated, unless Hans Moss finds a body in the bathroom of one of these kids, there's no way in hell they can arrest them anymore. Very interesting. So again, this has been a very long, drawn-out process of them finding even enough evidence to be able to arrest somebody. And then once they do arrest somebody, they can't hold them on the charges. Unfortunately, this became a pattern, and therefore, we never really learn what happens. So, for years, and we'll talk a little bit about that going forward, um, how it was so convoluted and who's to blame for that. We'll ask that question at the end, actually. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of the investigation once it was closed and some of the criticism that they all received before we get there. Um, so, Natalie's mother, God bless her, continued for years after her daughter's disappearance to allege that Vandersloot and the Kalpa brothers knew more about Holloway's disappearance than they told the authorities. She blamed police for not acting quickly and decisively enough, saying that they waited too long to arrest the primary suspects if Natalie was still alive. Conversely, the Aruban police laid the blame at the feet of the Twitties. They claimed Beth had impeded their investigation and hushed some of Natalie's classmates telling them not to say anything incriminating about her during their preliminary search. To this day, Beth Twitty continues to search for her daughter, which is very sad to me. I feel like you have to. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's really hard because they talk about how quickly or how, excuse me, how like those first hours are like critical. But it's like at this point, I don't know. It's, it's that has to be a very difficult situation at this point. Like you don't want to stop searching, but I don't know. Just very sad. Very I think sad. that would be hard with I any agree. like Mrs. Mrs. Missing person case where it's like, when do you throw in the towel? Do you ever? I mean, there have been cases which we'll cover, like J.C. Dugard, like Elizabeth Smart, like. You know, there's a bunch of cases where people went missing for an exponential amount of time. I think J.C. Duggard was missing for like 30 years, 20-something years, something like that. Somewhere between 15 and 40 years she was missing. Her, by the way, her memoir is amazing if anybody likes to read. But Elizabeth Smart? No. J- well, yes, but J.C. Dugard is who I was talking about. Oh, um, okay. I'm sorry. But the case is wild. But like with that case... Hold on, let me look at how long she was missing for. But, like, that's the kind of case that gives people hope, right? Where it's like, it has happened before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do have to. I I think it would be so difficult to not at least try and maintain that positive outlook. Like, hey, she might be out there somewhere. So, JC was kidnapped for 18 years. So, I was wrong. But it's insane. Like Like, it really does show you that, like, Maybe, like, and these fucking people make it hard to know what's true and what's not. That's the thing. And even amongst all this that's going on, while they're trying to sort this out, the authorities are over here like, we're trying to sort this out too. 
getting conflicting information and a bunch of false leads. So they're going in a bunch of different directions. And then everybody's looking at each other like, well, are you going to arrest somebody for this? And are you going to actually tell us what happened to our daughter? Meanwhile, they're over here like, maybe if you would stop going around and asking her classmates not to say anything about it to us, like, that's the one thing is like, I, I get both sides of the frustration here because it's like, if they were impeding the investigation in any way, they could have really screwed things up. But at the same time, could you just sit back on the sidelines and be like, hey, we're handling it. We're working on it. Be like, obviously, you're fucking not. She's still not here if she is alive. And you do maintain that hope. Oh, man. It is very, very sad. But so a little bit more about what went on in, and as this progressed over the years. In late 2007 to early 2008, shortly after his release from his second arrest in the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, Joran Vandersloot went out and told a friend during a recorded conversation that Natalie was dead and her body had been dumped in the ocean. He said that Holloway had collapsed when they were on the beach together and unable to revive her had a friend help dispose of her body and dumped her in the ocean from a boat. Once he was made aware that his alleged confession was recorded, Vandersloot insisted he was lying at the time. I'm sure he did. Note, from this time on, we never hear too much about the Coppola brothers again. Seems unlikely to me that they had no idea what happened to Natalie, but it is worth noting that either one of them, neither one of them, I should say, ever resurfaced in the investigation. Um, originally, they were two main suspects for having been involved, allegedly. But from here, it kind of shifts to the Vandersloot family that becomes the focus of the authorities. Um, so again, we're going to jump forward a little bit. 2010, five years after her disappearance. Joran Vandersloot turns back to the Holloway family and says he will disclose the location of Natalie's body. Five years after he supposedly dumped her in the ocean, mind you, for a sum of $25,000 up front and $225,000 total. Let me say that again. He is trying to extort the family of the woman he allegedly murdered for a quarter million dollars to disclose where she was dumped. As if we needed more evidence that this guy's a piece of shit. There you go. But this is only where it starts to get real hairy. May 10th, 2010. A lawyer for the Twitties meets with Jorn Vandersloot. His name is John Kelly. John brought $10,000 to a meeting with Vandersloot in Aruba. Joran claims that he led the way to a house and said his father had buried Natalie Holloway in its foundation. He claimed that they would have to dig up the building to find her. What? So she is buried in the foundation of a building that was under construction in 05 and at the time was then built? What? That same day... Another $15,000 was wired to his bank account in the Netherlands, Vandersloot. He later admitted to John Kelly that he had been lying again and from there covertly traveled to Peru to participate in a poker tournament. 
this is, again, already a pretty wild, massive turns, twists and turns case. It's about to get real, real windy. He's now the primary suspect and has been toying with Natalie's family for five years since her disappearance. In Peru, for a poker tournament, Joran Vandersloot is then implicated in the murder of another young woman. Ten days after meeting with John Kelly and lying to the Twitties, Joran Vandersloot killed 21-year-old Stephanie Flores Ramirez in his hotel room in Lima, Peru. Her body was not immediately discovered, as her killer had left instructions that forbade hotel staff from entering his room. And again, it was his room. So, he's on the run, because now he's suspected in two murders. One that he probably is never going to see justice for, and the other, as a result of, well, he'll describe what it was a result of, but he was eventually captured in Chile after a manhunt took place across two countries for him. On June 3rd, 2010, he was arrested and transported back to Lima, Peru to await trial in the infamous Castro Castro prison. Around six months later, he was later indicted in the U.S. for wire fraud for stealing money from the Twitties in March. So, my dude got himself into some pretty tight jams here, as if he already wasn't. As for the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez, Joran Vandersloot's attorneys claimed that he had suffered a mental break due to the ongoing investigation into Natalie Holloway's disappearance. However, investigators concluded that he had attempted to rob her of her winnings from the casino and kill her instead. So, again, this guy, I'm more likely to believe the authorities. I don't think it was a mental break. I think he was a sick fuck. But we'll talk about that. Again, let's jump forward two years. Joran Vandersloot's in Peru. Been waiting for a sentence. January 11th, 2012, it finally comes. He pleads guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores. The defense blamed his actions on, quote, extreme psychological trauma. But again, keep in mind, 10 days later, or I'm sorry, 10 days earlier, I should say, he was trying to extort the family of the woman he allegedly killed. So you're bringing it on yourself if at the very best, at the very worst, you're a fucking murderer. Um, but he pleads guilty despite trying to plead extreme psychological trauma. After two days of deliberations, he was sentenced to 28 years in prison and ordered to pay $75,000 in restitution for the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez. Eventually, he will be extradited to the U.S. to face wire fraud charges against the Twitties. However, that won't happen for at least 25 years because he's going to be in Castro Castro for at least that long. January 12, 2012, the day after his alleged confession, seven years almost after Natalie disappears, Natalie Holloway is officially declared dead. At the behest of her father, her biological father, and against the wishes of her mother, Holloway is formally declared dead by an Alabama judge. 
Natalie's father was quoted as saying, Beth's position is that she has no proof or indication that Natalie is alive, but absent any proof or indication that she's dead, she always wants to hang on to that slight glimmer of hope, her lawyer said. Six and a half years after her disappearance in Aruba, the search for Natalie Holloway was officially closed by Aruban, Dutch, and U.S. authorities. To this day, her case remains unsolved. So I have a couple questions for you guys, because obviously this case has a lot of ups and downs, a lot of twists and turns, but I think this is one of those cases where it's like, we can analyze it after the fact, see like, what did we do wrong? Did we act quickly enough? Did we ask the right questions? Did we pinpoint the right potential suspects? And did we move quickly enough to apprehend them after we realized who it was? Because it seems now that it's obvious who did it considering his history. Um, so I'll ask the obvious question first, you guys. Do we think Joran van der Sloot is responsible in some way for Natalie's death? And then was it just him? Or do we think his father or maybe the Kalpo brothers share some of the responsibility for it? I think he's definitely involved. He's said and done too many things. Um, to make me believe otherwise. It's just really hard to determine what exactly went down. Like, I want I want answers from him. I know. I'm so desperate to, like, get a straight answer. Can we give this guy truth serum and be like, what happened? I wish we could, because these cases frustrate me to no end. I know. So frustrating. Um, I just... I hate that he's like he like plays this cat and mouse game with it. Like he like gives them a little bit of information and is like, just kidding, like haha. Like it's not funny, like you're messing with someone's family, someone's life. I also think like, think about the false leads, right? Yeah. Maybe he had someone plant them. Maybe he had someone give them that information to throw them off the scent. I don't know. I don't know how well connected this dude was, but it's worthy of note. I agree, though. I think he definitely had some involvement. I don't know if it was just him. I don't know if the Kalpa brothers were in on it. I don't know if he might have told his dad, and his dad was like, I'll cover your ass this one time. You know, you killed this yeah. girl. I know that, like, in the court of law, um, lie detector tests aren't admissible because they're not always accurate. Like, not. I wish they could do something like that just to, like, not even to, like, accuse him, because, again, I know that the accuracy is questionable for those. But even just to get, like, one step closer to an inkling of truth. I don't even think it's about the accuracy, Lisa. I think it's about the fact that they can be faked. Like, you yeah. can very easily beat a polygraph test if you know how to do it. They the need to bring in, like, Russian CIA agents or something and, like, have them, like, get it out of this guy. So, real quickly, do you guys know how to beat a polygraph test? Like, an easy way? Smoke a lot of weed. Oh, that would be my choice of place to do it, but no, I don't think that's the easiest way. No way. The way to do it is to keep an accelerated heart rate the entire time. Yeah, but don't they catch that? So I have agree. anxiety is what you're telling yeah. me. You're anxious, exactly. Check. And the way Jules is like, I'm good. But All the right. way to do it, like Jules, your toe is broken, right? 
the way you do it is you inflict pain on yourself or you live out a painful experience while you're undergoing the polygraph test. So it seems like you're like, like see that that's happening. Like can't skilled polygraph examiners like realize like what you're doing. Technically, yes, they could say like, are you answering truthfully? And you'd just be like, if you have a broken toe, for example, what CIA agents, you mentioned the CIA least that they used to be taught to do is to put a thumbtack in your shoe. So if you were ever interviewed for a polygraph, you just push your big toe up against that thumbtack. Hurts like a bitch, but your heart rate's going to spike. So immediately it's like. Yeah, but you could have a, a high resting heart rate. Right. Okay. When you're asking or you're just really nervous. Like Jules has anxiety. No, but I mean, like, can't, like, polygraph people who are trained to read polygraphs realize that, like, your heart randomly keeps spiking when, like, isn't that, like, a reason they wouldn't test you? Because, like, I know, I know that, like, because I watch Dr. Phil all the time, of course, he always does polygraph tests, like, and, like, has them done. And, like, sometimes they're inadmissible because some extrinsic factor, right? Like, the guy, like, wouldn't sit still or, like, was fidgety or, like, his heart was going crazy. And they say, like, I'm not testing him because he's. He's going nuts. They don't like but sit him down thing, like, and like take it. You can't necessarily as... guarantee that somebody won't be super nervous or yeah. be lying and I definitely or, think or nervous not know the truth. Natural reaction to that. Yeah. And they ask like planter questions like your first name is Matt. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. You got that one right. Give us a baseline question so you know that they're like, they're there. But then you ask more prying questions and then you have to intermingle in other like basic generic questions just to make sure that they're not spiking every time they answer a difficult question. So that's how they kind of try and weed it out. But still, no guarantee that that person isn't just savvy at beating a lie detector. So interesting to know. And it would be cool if we could. Um, So speaking of that, since we talk a little bit about like obvious tells, right? Like this guy clearly did it. My second question for you guys, because Joran did this, he went on Greta Van Susteren. Is it more or less suspicious for a potential suspect of a crime to go on TV and try to explain their side of the story? What do we think? Uh, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's lame. You think it's like pretty contrived, like very obviously scripted? Yeah. And, and like, why do you have like a media management team and like, a, you know, why are you doing all of this? Right. Like you were prepped. I always think of that scene in the movie Gone Girl. I haven't read the book, which kill me because I know I really should. Um, but I think of that scene in the movie Gone Girl where Tyler Perry is like prepping Ben Affleck's character by throwing gummy bears at him like he's asking him questions and he's like every time you look annoyed i'm gonna hit you with a gummy bear every time you look irritated to be here i'm gonna hit you with a gummy bear every time you look away from the camera like you can prep so that you look like very sincere and very you know heartbroken downtrodden like i feel terrible this happened and i just don't know what to do like you can prep for that right so does that that's what i think it's i agree with you jules that like it's very to me is like you you know what they were going to ask, right? Even if it's the prying question, did you kill Natalie Holloway? You fucking knew that was coming, right? Like, that's the whole reason you're here, bro. She's not going to be like, 
so what do you think of the Ruben International School of Business? Do you really enjoy your classes? Like, do you like sports? Like, you're not here for that. No, we're going to ask you a difficult question. You better know what the fuck you're going to say. If you don't, you look guilty. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think for him specifically, it was weird. It's for him specifically, it just seems like he does everything for attention, which is kind of a bizarre. Like, it makes me think, though, like when parents do interviews and like people like flip out on the way like parents are perceived because either they're too emotional, they're not emotional enough. So I feel like with a lot of these things, there's really no winning. But in his specific case for Joran Vandersloot, I I think there's no real reason for him to give an interview. Like, what are you giving? Like, it seems like he just wants to be infamous. Other than the obvious of what you said is he wants attention. And and that's even, that's evident throughout this whole investigation, right? Like, this dude keeps popping up. He keeps having new pieces of evidence. He keeps having a new part to his story. Oh, yeah, my bad. I, I, I walked home. Where were your shoes, bro? Oh, yeah, my I left them on the beach. Okay, well, that's a pretty far walk home. Oh, no, my buddy actually picked me up. My bad. It's like everything he tells you is like, well, wait a minute. We got to circle back again because that's not what you originally said. It seems like he's going for that angle of just trying to be involved in the investigation, which we know how killers do that. Um, So let's ask a little bit. Let's switch gears away from Jorn Vandersloot for a second. Let's talk a little bit about the investigation. Was her disappearance handled properly? If anyone fell short on the investigation, who was it? Police? International authorities who could have stepped in early? Her mother? Her friends? What do we think, guys? I think mistakes were made on everyone's account. I think, as I mentioned earlier... Those first, like, they didn't know originally that Natalie was just missing. Like, she could have been alive, like, that was, that's not what I meant. They didn't know she was alive or dead at at first. So I think they mishandled those first crucial hours. Um, But I also think having the parents kind of meddling didn't help either. I don't know. I think nobody it's it's like I don't know I think that's one of those things where I don't know if anybody knows how to handle this type of scenario except for maybe the police and detectives and I do think they dropped the ball here a bit but it is it's one of those tough cases because like she was on spring break maybe she did just get drunk and like wander into the ocean or like whatever but like obviously that's not the case and she was seen with people here and it seems like they didn't take it super seriously at first and then like we talked about her mom contacting people to tell them to like not divulge certain information about her daughter that might you know make the case a little sticky for her might refocus media attention in a negative light I think but I think there's no playbook on how to react when something like this happens for the family for the friends for people who aren't in law enforcement and aren't in, you know, that world. And even people who are, I mean, circumstances are circumstances. And I think while I think they should take every disappearance serious, I think they were also looking at it as this is a teen girl who just partied too hard and has probably passed out somewhere. 
You know what I mean? Like, I think they didn't immediately think, like, oh, she was kidnapped, raped, and, you know, sold into sex slavery or killed. I think their first thought was, you know, that she's gone. Yeah, I, I do, Lisa. I actually, I get exactly what you're saying. I, I, I think to that point, multiple parties deserve some blame here, right? The police probably did exactly what you just said. You know what? First 48 hours, as we've talked about before, are critical. That first 48 hours, though, police also have this weird catch-22 where they're like, dude, she might be passed out drunk somewhere. She might be in bed with some dude she met on the beach at 3 o'clock in the morning and just passed the fuck out. Like, we don't know. Maybe she is dead. Maybe she's in the back of a car somewhere. Maybe she'll show up any minute and she's just, you know, sleeping it off. What's kind of crazy is recently, actually, not to to digress too much, but in the same vein where it's like, yeah, you could put blame on the police and why we talked about maybe you shouldn't be that harsh on them. There was a case here, actually, one of my my schoolmates, like one of my classmates, um, her friend went out with all of their friends. They got really drunk here in Pittsburgh. This just happened like a month ago. They got drunk, whatever, went out for someone's birthday. And she, the girl lost her phone and didn't end up home. And everybody like didn't go to work the next day. Everybody was freaking out. And I don't know how or why I talked about this with my friend, but like immediately it got the news attention. Um, and police got involved immediately. Like they didn't wait 24 hours. Because someone reported her missing and said that they thought something was, like, fishy with her boyfriend or something. Because no one could find her. No one knew where she was. No one could get a hold of her. Her, like, find my iPhone was, like, tracked to, like, nowhere. Like, it just, like, ended. There was no trace of this girl. And it ended up, literally, they found her 24 hours later. She just, like, got really drunk, passed out at a friend's house that, like, no one was really familiar with. And, like, she was fine. And, like, she didn't have her phone because she lost her phone somewhere in the streets when she was really drunk she was in Southside. Um, and she, like, dropped her phone somewhere, which is why no one could find her. And, like, they went to her apartment and she wasn't there. And they, like, freaked out. But it was interesting. I Like, I still don't quite understand why it got the attention that it did so quickly. But it makes you think that, like, when police are quick to action, sometimes it leads to things that have very, like, menial... Um, outcomes you know like very like mundane reasoning behind it or when people go missing it's just because they wanted a break or whatever yeah like true story sometimes i mean not to throw anybody under the bus but whatever bus isn't that big my dad used to do that like just go awol for a little while you know didn't bring his phone would just leave it only used to piss my mom off when he did it when, like, there was company coming over. It's like, yeah, everybody will be here at 8 for dinner. And he's like, all right, y'all go pick up the pizza dough. And at 9, my man was not here. Oh, my God. So, I would have flipped out. Oh, uh, my mom used to get so fucking pissed. Twice I had to go down to Papa Rock's to be like, yo, what are you doing? Twice. He was, at, dad, he was just hanging out at Papa Rock's? He was just having a beer. Like, he bumped into somebody oh. and he sat down and he's bullshitting with this guy. And he's sitting at the bar. He knew the owner. So he's, like, hanging out, you know? Yeah. And, but you know, part of your mind is like, did he wreck his car on the way down there? Did he get shot? Did, you know, did he get arrested? Where is he? And those first 48 hours, like, again, we're not going to criticize the police because we don't really know what they were 
dealing with at the time. But I, I will say, though, in general, while I do know cases like the one I just described happen, I do it's think it should be taken more seriously quicker. Like, I feel like because they say, <clears throat> what, the first 48 hours are the most important when someone goes missing. Really the first but for some reason, they don't act until that time. So it, like, right. kind of is counterproductive. So I do think while there are cases like the ones we've described where people just, like, stop and get a beer or, like, just forget that their phone's missing and people are yeah. wondering where the hell they are. Um, yeah. I think the cases that aren't those, those should trump the ones that are instead of the other yes. way around. Well, I also think, and again, we're, we're, I don't want to get off on a tangent about it. I also think you got to look at her family and be like, you know what? Like you tried to come in and day one control the investigation. You know, they wanted her friends and, and her friends are the ones who told Aruban authorities this, that they came down and started talking to people and being like, well, you don't need to mention that she was drunk. Like you don't need to mention that she was with this guy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to say that about her because, you know, we don't want her reputation smeared. Meanwhile, it's like, she's fucking missing. Like, who cares if she fucked some random dude this week? Like, she she can fuck 10 if she wants. Let's find her and then figure it out. Like, but supposedly her mom particularly came down and was like asking her friends. And when she found out details, like, yeah, she's been shit-faced for like four days in a row, would say things like, don't you know don't say that you know you don't need to tell everybody that i mean it's a reality no parent really wants to look in the eyes but when your daughter is missing or your child you know you You don't want to think that she might have done something to put herself in that situation is i think the big fear so i think there's a little bit of responsibility that needs to be shared by the police for sure her parents to an extent just for trying to like butt into the investigation and make things their own. And then obviously the sack of shit that probably killed her is most likely to be held accountable. Um, but we also want to talk a little bit today about the case itself's coverage in the media, because as we said, her picture was splattered all over the freaking news for like two years. I mean, the whole world knew the name Natalie Holloway. We still know the name Natalie Holloway. I told people we were going to be recording this case. And again, this happened in 2005. She went missing. So we're 17 years on from this. And people are like, who was it that said? One of, one of our friends was like, oh, that girl that went missing. Like, you remember the name. And you remember what she looked like because it was so heavily profile the saturation of coverage triggered a backlash actually among some critics who argued that such extensive media coverage kind of validated this whole missing white woman syndrome which is a theory that argues that missing persons cases involving white women and girls receive disproportionately more attention in the media compared to cases involving males or people of color so what do we think about this guys i mean does the U.S. media do this? And if so, yes. like, how can we shed light? <laughs> In short, yes. And yes. how can we shed light on this problem, if anything? I think it's a really big problem. Um, but I think the misconception, as always, is that doesn't mean we think that cases like Natalie Holloway, Gabby Petito shouldn't get the coverage that they get. Right. It's that the other one should get the same. Right. And they get none. Well, 
we talked once about um like darn it, I can't remember which case it was specifically we were referencing. We were saying how like in the Pacific Northwest region alone, there are like over six hundred missing persons cases of women under the age of twenty five, women of color who are either of Native American, Hispanic, or black descent that have gone missing, like straight up disappeared. It's over like six hundred cases it's wild. in like the last five years alone. And then like isn't it like in one small area as well? It's it, not in like, like the Pacific Northwest. It's like Washington, Oregon, Idaho, like parts of Wyoming, parts of color. It's like a very specific region of, and you're talking like, dude, that's over like 120 people a year are just up and disappearing. Like that's either the most prolific serial killer of all time, or this is a fucking chronic problem that we have and people are just ignoring it. Wild. I think to your second part of the question, how we can shed light on it, I think since Natalie Holloway, we've seen more of these cases of Indigenous people, people of color, you know, coming to light as there are more and more platforms for people to put out their own things, right? Like I could have a, right, I could have a, a YouTube channel where I report news. Like we have our podcast where we can pick what we want to choose and cover. And I think as that sort of rose and more and more of those like networks become available i mean like tiktok you yeah. know if you have a tiktok you can post what you want on there and if you're posting like these cases they're going to get exposure and so i think that's i mean a small thing that we can do to bring awareness and talk about all the missing people because it's not just blonde white women hey Amen. And that's a great point, Joel. There are so many platforms where we can explore this and, and bring it to light. And unfortunately, sometimes that's not until much later in stages of this that we realize that. But it does happen that we kind of glorify, I hate to use the word glorify because it's not appropriate, but we glorify these missing women who are white, pretty, blonde, and ignore or don't even acknowledge anyone else's missing persons cases. I mean, it's a trend that we've noticed, but now I agree that we're starting to see more and more platforms for news and media. It's definitely becoming more likely that you'll see the truth. Um, So I also, I wanted to kind of circle back on this question because before we get to our final and most important question, it seems as though there were dozens of arrests in this case. It was really only three to four guys, but it seems like they got all arrested multiple times. Should police have been more selective to establish a storyline and try and maintain their credibility? Or would it be better to shine a light on anyone who's involved, even if it means potentially getting it wrong? It seems like they were grasping at straws. There was a lot of media attention. There was a lot of pressure And so I feel like when they felt that someone was suspicious, they brought them in and arrested them. And like, does that hurt their credibility? Yeah. But I feel like at that point, their credibility, like they were going for a win and yeah, it didn't have to be a pretty win. It just. Give us something. Right. Yeah. That's my take. I agree. I think 
I think there's, like Jules was saying, especially with one with such media spotlight, there's a lot of pressure to get the bad guys to make people feel safe. But I think since it happened twice, I'm, I struggle with understanding how the second time around they still weren't able to present enough evidence to nail this guy. I think that's frustrating because if you failed the first time and you realized you didn't have a strong enough case, how did you not realize the second time that you also didn't have a strong case? Was it rushed? I think so. But again, I think that's partially because of the media pressure. They they were under extreme pressure to get this guy off the streets, to get these guys off the streets, and they rushed to get it done. But I think that did hurt the case because I think when they brought it to the court and the court was like, you don't have a case, you're back to square one all over again. And I think at that point, you're just wasting people's time. Well, I don't think it was intentional. I do think the intent was good. I think this is the reason why in the U.S. at least it takes 7,000 years to try a case because they want to make sure all their T's are crossed and their I's are dotted. But again, when you have a, like a hyper flashlight on a case, I could understand why there was, especially with like Natalie's family, you know, on top of them and like, which I understand from Natalie's family's perspective as well. You just want answers. And unfortunately, detective work doesn't work how it does in TV shows where it's a yeah. one hour episode and it gets solved. Yeah. yeah, And everybody, every person they talk to gives you a relevant piece of information. That's right. the one thing about law and order I noticed is like every person they talk to gives them some clue. Think of how many people police talk to right. who have no fucking clue what happened that are just like they were there, they were on spring break and just happened to be with Natalie for like two hours, like the DJ on the party boat. Guys, like I don't even know who she is, honestly. I think though, to, to both your points, and I think you're both correct, the word that comes or the term that comes to mind for me is like show of force. Like, listen, we don't even know if we're getting it right, but we got to do something, right? Like we can't just go on months without having anybody get arrested, anybody questioned really, or any suspect that we can actually point to and be like, well, we might, we think it might be this guy. We at least have evidence to show. If you got nothing, you got squat, it's kind of like people are going to be like, well, we're wondering about the veracity of their conclusions. And if anybody's even doing anything over there, So mm -hmm. I think it definitely to me, is better to have them say something than nothing. But at the same time, if, if we're just grasping at straws and we're coming up with like real loose ended conclusions, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to go to court and it's going to get tossed. So it's a shame, but that obviously it seems to be the case here. So my final question for you guys, and this was a kind of a long questionnaire, but I think with these blind eye cases, we have so many more questions and that's why, you know, it's not just like, what do we know happened? What do we think about what we know? But what do we think happened to Natalie Holloway? I think in some sense, I circle back to the, we dumped her in the ocean, whether it was like, Natalie did pass out. Like, I mean, if they were out partying and drinking, maybe she passed out from being too drunk and they panicked. Maybe she did, maybe she denied any like sexual advances and that pissed them off. And I don't know. I think, I think ultimately she was dumped in the ocean. I don't know what exactly happened to lead to that, but he, he, I mean, 
he admitted that on a, in a recorded conversation. So I feel like there's got to be, and I think he's, I feel like he said it more than once, something about her being dumped in the ocean. So I feel like you have to like that. There's something to it. I don't know how we got to that point. Yeah. I am not a hundred percent sure. And that's why these cases kill me. Cause I, I don't, I'm different in that. I hate like as much, as much as I love doing these blind eye cases, I hate unsolved crime so much because I'm the kind of person who needs answers I want a finite resolution to whatever is going on and I hate that I don't know and I never will know but I I think there's a hint of truth in what Yaren is saying and like whether it's full truth I don't know but I think because he's kept that's why I come back to the ocean yeah, 100%. I think I think something went on. And like I just think for him to come out so many times with similar stories about what happened to her, I feel like not only is that him toying with the media police and her family and the world, I think that's that's a hint of truth coming out and we know this man has violent tendencies, right? Cuz he got convicted of a crime right after. Well, not right after, but you know, didn't he kill someone? A little bit down the road. Five years after. And yeah, and so like we know he has the violence in him. So that erases my doubt that he that he would have hurt her, because I think he's capable of it and he's shown us that. The fact that he's callous in that he's like taunting her family and the public. I just think a night of drinking got crazy, got too rough. Maybe he's a piece of shit just inside and out and just attacked her. Maybe they got in an argument. Maybe he took advantage of her drunk and left her there and she got swept away by the ocean. Uh, Maybe he killed her on purpose. I don't know. But I do think there was foul play somewhere. And I think, unfortunately, she ended up in the ocean, which is why we have not found her, uncovered her, anything like that. I sadly completely agree. Couldn't agree more. I think to both your points, we'll never really know, and that's very frustrating. But I think it seems to me, I think Jorn Vandersloot killed her. Let's just lay that out there. This guy obviously had it in him to kill a woman. I think the whole idea that oh yeah yeah I uh, I didn't have a condom so you know she she told me she uh, actually she told me she wanted to but I didn't want to like get the fuck out of here dude. I think exactly what you said, Lise. Somewhere along the lines, he tried to push, it's your last night, you know, that whole narrative. And she was like, okay, I'm still not going to fuck you, though. And he hit her. And maybe she fell. Maybe he hit her too hard. Maybe he snapped and beat the shit out of her. But I think he did something where he got blood on his shoes And then I think he called his dad, or he called one of his buddies, and they dragged her body onto a boat and took her out into the sea and dumped her there. And I hate to say that, because I think that actually means we'll never really know what happened, but I hope someday he's forced to admit it under pain of duress. But I never really really get a satisfying feeling out of doing these cases the way we do for eye for an eye because even if i can say like oh we should kill this motherfucker i don't know for sure that he did it i'm pretty sure he did it though so Mm -hmm. that's a safe conclusion 
at this point, at this juncture. I think there's no other alternative that makes sense. Yeah, well, let us know what you guys think. I'm very, very yeah. curious. I know there's a lot of, like, conspiracy theories and shit out there about... We didn't even touch on those, honestly. That's the right. thing. There's a lot around this case that we didn't even go into about, like, who really might... Like, there are people that say, like, the CIA was in on it. You know, like, there yeah. are people that say, like, she was kidnapped by Russian gangsters and yeah. still being held hostage and shit. Um, some people say she ran away and, like, just didn't want to come back to the U.S., but let us know. Honestly, I'm curious to see if anybody has a, like a, a really unique one for this because there are definitely possibilities out there. Absolutely. And as always, like, rate, review, subscribe, hit the ma- hit the Patreon, hit the Patreon page. <laughs> Not renamed it. Hit hit the Patreon page. Show us some love. Where you can get more of these eye for an eye slash blind eye releases that'll come out early for you on the Patreon page if you pledge five bucks a month. Five bucks a month. You spend four dollars a day on Starbucks if you're like anybody else that I know. You can help us out, I think. Also, if you want to really show some love and you want to put that out there in the public eye, go cop some merch, man. We got some really cool stuff. We just put doggies on our merch, which yeah. makes it even cooler. And that's all I got, ladies. What do we think? Anything else? No, that's it. It is my bedtime. And I hope whoever's listening, if it's your bedtime, you have a wonderful bedtime Sweet too. Sweet murdery dreams. Oh, God. Yes. I hope Natalie Holloway's listening and can chime in someday and be like, Sup, y'all? I've been chilling down here in Aruba, catching a fire tan. Just doing oh my gosh. Alabama. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be so cool. She just popped but yeah thanks for a great case i am excited to hear what everybody thinks and i hope everybody has a wondrous night y'all be or safe day or whatever the hell these get released in the morning, morning so rest of day, your day noon, night whatever man just enjoy it life is short hey man could be in aruba you know? <laughs> Alrighty, bye everybody good night y'all <laughs>